If you were here um, last week or picked us up online, uh, you know that we started a new focus for the fall uh, over the course of uh, last week, last Sunday morning, and uh, looking at what God has revealed about the future and especially about the return of Jesus. So we just started to think about uh, some of that, uh, and we're going to be focused on two letters in the New Testament that two of the letters that make up the New Testament. In um, Thessalonians, Paul writes two letters to the people in Thessalonica. And you might remember, uh, Paul and Silas went there, started the church, but in three weeks, uh, the people ran him out of town. The Jewish people ran uh, Paul out of town. And so he's only there for a short time. And uh, one of the reasons uh, for studying these two letters is because Uh, These people had a lot of questions about the Lord's return. They thought the Lord was going to come back sooner than he did. And uh, so things started to happen and questions started to come up. And so Paul writes these two letters to address those questions, which is really great for us because now we get to understand from those scriptures uh, more about what's going to happen when the Lord comes back. And so, um, you know, the Bible has always been its own best commentary, right? So... While we'll be focused on Thessalonians, we'll also pull in some of the prophetic scriptures, especially the Old Testament book of Daniel, which is kind of like the backbone of uh, prophecy, and uh, Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus talks to his disciples about his return, and um, uh, especially the book of Revelation, where John was taken up into heaven and then writes about it so that we can get a picture of uh, some of the things uh, that are coming in the future. And so in addition to that, Luke and Paul and Peter uh, all write about, you know, end times and uh, some of the events that are going to take place. And so while we'll use uh, the Thessalonian letters as kind of our uh, exegetical core, we'll be bringing in other scriptures uh, to uh, come around uh, the truth that we find there. I I always think about this. In the 119th Psalm, the psalmist says, uh, the sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word. Take all of the word of God and we'll come up with the truth. Pick little pieces here and there. I, I go to Bible studies sometimes and people say, well, I really like this verse. Well, that's good, you know, but you should like all the verses. Because the sum of all those verses, when we put it all together, is the truth. And so a lot of things go, uh, you know, people say, well, you know, the Bible says, and it drives me crazy when politicians will quote a passage of scripture way out of context and make it the whole deal. And uh, the sum of your word is the truth, right? Uh, The psalmist tells us. And so uh, we decided, or I decided, I guess I should say, uh, that um, when we have the truth about the future, it results in hope in our lives in the present. There's a lot of things you can let go of in the present and relax about if you know what God's gonna do in the future, right? You know, for example, we're gonna get a new body. So when we get sick and when we experience loss and so on and so forth, if you have hope that, you know, no matter what happens, sooner or later, we're all gonna pass out of this life But if you have confidence that in the future you're going to get a brand new body that's going to be like Jesus' body, you're going to relax about it. 
You can be optimistic about it. You can say, well, yeah, this is terrible, and yeah, I'm suffering, and yeah, but, you know, it's temporary. And I've got eternity given to me as a gift by God. And so it just makes a difference uh, in a lot of different areas of our life. And uh, I just think that people with biblical hope simply live better than people without hope or people with misplaced hope. If we put our hope in something other than the Lord and other than his promises, uh, we set ourselves up to be let down. And, uh, you know, and then we become sort of uh, hopeless. So for a theme verse, uh, I picked Romans 15, uh, verse 13, which would be a great verse to memorize. Here's what it says. May the God of hope, that's his name in this passage, the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you Fill you, not just, you know, sprinkle you. We're not Presbyterians here. We're, you know, may the, may the God of hope fill you, listen, with all joy and peace. Now, I just love that. If you talk to people and kind of ask them, what do you want out of life? Most people want joy and peace. Most people, I remember a long time ago reading a survey. Somebody stood in an airport and just asked people, what's the most important thing to you in life? And just asked random people. And like 90-something percent of those people said, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. I just want joy. You know, and I want to be at peace. And here's God coming to us in his word saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace In believing, it says. In believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound, that's our word again, abound, right, in hope. So here's God's will for you and me today. He wants us to abound in hope, which means he wants us to be so satisfied with the reality of what he's promised in the future you know, that it overflows out of us and influences other people. How can you be so optimistic when you're facing this trial and you're facing this, you know, uh, tragedy or you're facing, you know, whatever it is that comes your way? How can you be so optimistic? How can you be so positive? How can you, you know, do that? Well, you know, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. God did it. God does it. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace, peace that passes understanding, believing, right, in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. Okay, so that's our theme verse, and uh, it's God's will for us to abound in hope, and when we do, I want to submit to you that joy and peace comes into our life And that joy and peace does not come from the world. Joy and peace comes from God. And that's what I mean by misplaced hope. Now, there's a lot of good things in the world, and and, and I think we should enjoy life. I believe it's a gift from God, and it's great, but there's something better than life itself. And it's God's love. And joy and peace come from God, not from the world, right? And so... We can live then from the inside out rather than the outside in. Some people think, well, you know, if I could just get married, you know, then I'd have joy and peace. Other people think, if I could just lose my partner, I'd have joy and peace. (laughs) Isn't it true, right? 
Some people think if I could just have this car or that car or buy this house or take that vacation, then I'd have joy and peace. And I'm telling you, it might you know, give you a little joy and a little peace, but the real satisfying kind of joy that we long for and the peace that we want to live with comes from God, not from the world. And we're here to give testimony to that's why we're here worshiping Jesus. Because apart from him, we wouldn't have joy and peace. Right? We'd be as miserable as everybody else. But instead, we have smiles, right? We're excited about life, and we're thankful for uh, what God has done for us because of the hope that's in us. And so hope now, you know, is, is not wishful thinking. Uh, a lot of times when people use the word hope, they just mean wishful thinking. They're, they're like, oh, I hope it doesn't rain again, right? You were probably kind of thinking about that yesterday. Oh, I hope it's not going to rain again. And today we often use that word hope to mean nothing more than wishful thinking. And uh, biblical hope, however, has nothing to do with luck. Biblical hope has nothing to do with psyching ourselves up so that we're optimistic. Biblical hope, the word for hope in the Bible, is about rock-solid confidence in the character of God and his promises. Rock-solid confidence in the character. If God says he's going to do it, you can count on it. And when you do, and when he does, there's this kind of uh, reality where our faith continues to grow. The word for hope in the New Testament has no sense of uncertainty about it. Uh, The New Testament word hope refers to something that's certain but not yet realized. Certain, it's going to happen, because God said it's going to happen, and everything God says is going to happen has already happened. And so hope, I like this definition, hope is desire accompanied by expectation based on the promises of God. Hope is desire accompanied by expectation, it's going to happen, you know, based on the promises of God. Uh, Without God's promises, You know, what hope would we have? And so one of God's names, right, the God of hope, uh, we live in time. God created time as part of the creation. If you think about it, night and day was God's idea. Seven days a week, God's idea. Seasons, God's idea, you know. Uh, Years, the way the planets move around and so on and so forth. God made time part of the creation. But God doesn't live in the creation. He lives outside of the creation. And so he doesn't live in time. He lives in eternity. And so what is the future to God? It's the present. He knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. And he has chosen to reveal some of what's going to happen in the scriptures. What he wants us to know about the future, he put in his words so that we can uh, have a grasp on what's to come. Um, And so when you think about this, uh, it's why the Bible says that faith, our faith, is the substance of hope. Faith and hope are like two sides of the same coin. Faith, Hebrews 11.1, faith is the substance or the evidence of hope, right? That's what scripture says. Hope and faith go together. Um, And, you know, I think when we uh, think about this and we realize that faith is the basis for our hope and that hope is directly tied to our faith, we understand that when our faith rises, so does hope. 
when our faith rises and our faith matures, our hope gets refined and becomes more and more significant, which means that more joy and peace come into our lives, enough to spill over uh, to the people who are around us. And I would suggest to you that hope is kind of the counterbalance for all the trials that come into our life. Uh, Hope is the counterbalance or the answer to loss and failure and anger and regret and anxiety, and we could just go on and on and on. Hope offsets what happens to us when we encounter those various kinds of trials. And so the God of hope wants us to abound in hope so that we can encounter the trials that come our way and know how to respond to them and be confident uh, about the way that... uh, God has provided for us. So, Thessalonians. Um, you, remember we said again last week, and I'm sorry for the review, but um, there's three major things that we all have in common. We're all very different from each other, right? We talked about it last week. Uh, nobody looks the same. Nobody dresses the same. Nobody had the same parents, you know, uh, same experiences. Nobody has the same gift mix that God gives us. We're different from each other in a lot of ways, right? But there's three things that we all have in common that hold us together. Faith, hope, and love. Those are the three non-negotiable absolutes, you know, uh, that the scriptures tell us are what we Christians have in common. And so Paul loves this church in Thessalonica. Like I said, he was there, started it, loves these people. But look what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. He says, when I think about you, I remember before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, and love produce work, labor, right? And steadfastness. One of the things about hope when we're locked in and we know what's going to happen in the future, is that we become steadfast. Uh, The winds don't push us around. The trials that come don't make us waver in our faith and so on. Uh, The steadfastness of hope. Hope, One of the pillars that hope creates is that steadiness or sturdiness or unchangeableness. Uh, The the steadfastness of hope. And uh, as we said, faith, you know, is always about work. (laughs) If you believe what God has told us about the gospel and how the gospel changes everything, and if you're uh, living in the world, there's a lot that needs to be changed, and so there's a lot of work to do. There's a lot of work, and God gives us gifts so that we can all be players in the kingdom of God. And uh, faith, you know, is uh, a labor. Uh, Your work of faith, labor of love. Love always takes sacrifice. If you really want to love somebody, it's going to cost you. Uh, just like Jesus really wanted, like God really wanted to love us, and it cost them His Son's life. Uh, sacrifice is part of that, and so Paul, you know, this church understood all that, and uh, Paul is very excited, and so he writes to them about that. Uh, these people weren't just admirers; they were followers of Jesus. Not just admirers, but followers. And so, I want to suggest to you this morning that Paul reveals three major purposes for Jesus coming back in uh, First and Second Thessalonians. Three major purposes. Uh, I call it the end times trifecta, all right? Three big purposes for Jesus to come back. Number one uh, is this. Jesus will finally be recognized by the whole world for who he really is. 
How cool is that going to be? Jesus will finally be recognized by the whole world for who he really is. His return is going to be spectacular, and it's going to be worldwide, and uh, it's going to be of epic proportions. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 15, uh, Paul talks about it like this. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. One of the big questions of, these, of the people in this church was, hey, some people started to die. They're going to miss out on the Lord's return. We thought the Lord was going to return soon, and now some people have died. They're really going to miss out. And Paul's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You know, Anybody who's died in the Lord will be raised first, and they'll get like the front row seat when the Lord comes back, right? That's what he's saying. For we declare this to you by a word right from the Lord that we who are alive and left until his coming, uh, we're not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. Here's what's going to happen. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven three loud sounds. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. People are going to know when Jesus comes back. Three loud sounds. So uh, the cry of command, I don't know exactly what that is, except do you remember when Lazarus died and uh, Jesus finally came to his tomb uh, where he was inside? And uh, the Bible uh, tells us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Loud voice. And uh, I'm thinking maybe it's the same cry as the Lord descends, uh, lets out this loud command, all you believers in the grave, come out, you know, get out, get up, let's go. I'm coming back, you know. Uh, The cry of command. The second is the voice of an archangel. There's only one archangel that's named in the Bible, and that's Michael. And in Jude chapter 9, where the Bible actually talks about Michael the archangel, Uh, He's glorifying Jesus. So it doesn't tell us, the Bible doesn't tell us what it is that the archangel says, but I think it'll probably something that, you know, as a second voice that glorifies Jesus and uh, talks about him. And then comes the sound of the trumpet of God. Trumpets uh, were used in the Old Testament to announce the Lord's presence and also to call the people uh, together for battle. Uh, you might remember a couple of passages where trumpets are mentioned in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, uh, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to stay dead, right? But we shall all be changed. Everybody's going to be changed. Everybody's going to get a new body. It's great. Uh, you will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will all be changed. For the perishable must put on the imperishable, and, and, and so on. This is, uh, you know, I think when you think about this and you realize what's going to happen to us, um, it gets kind of exciting. Uh, not only, however, will uh, there be sound, uh, but there'll also be sight. And again, uh, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about this himself. And Jesus says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It'll be with lightning. 
Uh, immediately after the tribulation of these days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Not only will the coming of the Lord be accompanied with loud sounds, you know, and I think those of us who are living are going to be like, what was that? You know, unless we're familiar with the scriptures and we hear that sound and we know exactly what it is, but it will also be seen by everybody in the whole world. And I think uh, it gets kind of exciting when you start to think about what a day that's going to be. Um, Philippians, Paul writes to the church at Philippi and, and he says, you know, our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, our permanent citizenship is in heaven. And what we're doing here, according to Paul, is we're waiting for Christ to come, right? He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorified body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, I just, you know, I imagine that day. We have some friends who have uh, handicapped children, you know, and one of our friends, severely handicapped from the time she was a baby, She's an adult now, and she's just severely handicapped. And I think of this passage when I see her, and I just think, what a day that's going to be. What a day. You know, transform our lowly bodies uh, into uh, a glorious body like his own. And then you know what? Uh, Paul also writes to the Philippian church. He says, you know what? God was so happy with Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice on the cross that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God, Jesus is Lord. Wow. You know those people who mock us? You know those people you try to witness to and they just laugh at you and everything? Someday you're going to stand next to them and they're going to bow down and say, wow, Jesus is Lord. And they're going to do it to the glory of the Father. So we can't stop sharing the truth. We can't be intimidated. You know, again, if we know what's coming and we know we have confidence, I... I can't wait for the rest of the world to know what I know about Jesus. I can't wait for the whole world, right, to know the truth about who Jesus really is. How cool is that going to be? Well, we can expect that. Who really is Jesus? Well, let me read to you Colossians chapter 1. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, which means he's the best of all people. He's the firstborn of all people, right? For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Wow, that's what's wrong with the world. The world doesn't understand that we were created 
for Christ. The world just doesn't get it. All things were created by him and for him, and he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know what holds together the universe? He's the Lord of the universe. You know what holds together the universe? The word of the Lord. The word of God is what holds together the whole universe. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The whole world's going to recognize. What's the first reason for Jesus coming back? It's so that the world can know what we already know about him. It's why we've come together to worship him this morning. And it's why we're thankful and it's why we build our lives around him. If you think about it, Jesus came the first time in humility. He came as a baby, born in a barn. And hardly anybody recognized him. And eventually we killed him. Because people didn't recognize and wouldn't recognize who he was. When he comes back, everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to realize. I'm reading from Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Every eye will see him. Hardly anyone recognized him the first time, but when he comes back, he's coming back in majesty. Worship his majesty. We can do that. The rest of the world can't, right? He came the first time to die. He's coming back to reign. He's coming back to his millennial kingdom. And again, uh, the whole world will recognize uh, who he finally is. Titus, uh, in Titus uh, chapter 2, talks about uh, him like this. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God, Jesus, has appeared, past tense, bringing salvation to all of us, right? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to have self-controlled, upright, godly lives, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting, waiting with a sense of expectation, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A clear passage of scripture that talks about Jesus as God, right? What are we doing here? While we're waiting for him to come, right? I love it. Uh, In 2 Timothy um, chapter 4, the apostle Paul says this. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, And not only to me, but to all who love the Lord's appearing. To all who love the Lord. What does it mean to love the Lord's appearing? Can I suggest it means more than just believe in the Lord's going to appear? It means to love, to anticipate, to expect, to build your life around that reality, that certainty, that hope of the Lord coming back. And allow it to uh, inspire us in our everyday living, filling us with hope, turning that hope into joy and peace in our lives. What a great, you know, what a great day that's going to be. God's got a special reward for anybody, Paul says, right? The crown of righteousness for anybody 
who loves the Lord's appearing, who's really looking forward uh, to the Lord's appearing. Wow. Okay, so uh, what are we going to be doing, right? Uh, back to Thessalonians. What are we going to be doing uh, while all this is going on? And I'm glad you asked because in Second Thessalonians, uh, in the first chapter, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. He says, on that day, when Jesus comes back to be glorified, on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. To be glorified is to be, you and I are going to be singing his praises. We're going to be, you know, elbowing people. This is what I was trying to tell you. Don't you remember? You know, I told you the Lord was coming back and this is who he is. He's the son of the living God. He's the savior of the world and so on. And uh, he's going to come back and he's going to be glorified us. But look at this second thing. To be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those of us who believe. I think we're going to be blown away in secular language when we see Jesus. He's going to be way more than we thought. He's going to be way more majestic than we can even imagine. In fact, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, says, nobody can even imagine all that God's got prepared for those who love him. Even in our wildest imagination, he's going to be marveled at. We're going to be like blown away. We're going to be like, my goodness, I wish that I'd have recognized this while I was still alive. You know, before the Lord came so that I could give him his due, so that I could worship him uh, the way he ought to be worshipped and so on. Well, didn't get all the way through, but uh, I'll give you a hint, okay? The second purpose for the Lord's return is to judge against all that's evil and wrong. And it's called the Day of the Lord in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, Day of the Lord. Anytime you find the day of the Lord in all of scripture, and it's mentioned many, many, many times, okay, it's always bad. There's never any rejoicing. The whole book of Joel, if you want to do a little homework for next week, read the Old Testament book of Joel. It's all about the day of the Lord and what it's going to be like. And so uh, it's, it's bringing justice and judgment down on everything that's wrong. You know, I like to say to people, People say to me sometimes, well, if God is so great and he's so powerful, why didn't he do something about everything that's wrong? And I'm like, he did, and he's gonna. You know, first and second coming. And then finally, our faith is gonna become sight. The third purpose for Jesus coming back is to finish our salvation. And uh, we'll work our way through that in the scriptures. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that uh, you have revealed what we can hang on to about the future. It's not like it's just a shot in the dark and we have no clues as to what's going to come upon the world. And I pray for us, Father. I pray that when something like this happens in Israel or something happens at the United Nations, you tell us to watch for the signs as they come along. And uh, as we do that, Father, that you would, uh, by the power of your spirit, enable us to put these events in context and that we would understand that the events that are happening, you know, are, are part of what you've already revealed and they're part of a bigger plan. They're part of the plan of the sovereign God. And uh, when they don't make sense to us, I pray that you'll drive us back to the scriptures that we might refine our thinking according to your thoughts and according to your word. 
And uh, as things clarify and become clearer and clearer, uh, help us, Father, to be filled with the hope that you desire to give us. And may it translate into just what you said, uh, joy and peace in our everyday lives. For Jesus' sake, amen.